Well, my friends, he is officially off the flight in which he had no Wi-Fi. But he was stalking, I think is the right word to use in this situation. The Indians front office, Chris Antonetti, Mike Chernoff, and the rest of the people on his Southwest flight. And he's here to tell the story on our third and final Selby is Godcast of the week. It's Zach Meisel and myself, TJ Zuppi, and we welcome all of you that have followed along all week long, courtesy of the Athletic Cleveland. Hello, brother. How are you? Hey, did you know that if you want to smoke on a flight, all you have to do is step out onto the wing? hey uh, Make sure you wear your, your seatbelt low and tight like Britney Spears wore her pants. If someone actually took them up on that whole smoking thing, couldn't there be a lawsuit involved? Well, how would you get onto the wing <laughs> mid-flight? I, there is something on the wing. I don't know how you would make it out there. I'm pretty sure that once you opened up the airlock, you're all screwed. Yeah, well, and the Indians front office was sitting in the exit rows, so you'd have to go through them. <laughs> Although, they probably would have let me if I tried. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that based on the, the way you told your story. All right, so those that haven't seen, and I can't imagine there are many at this point that haven't seen your story, but for those that haven't seen, let's walk through it. Let's start at the beginning of the day, which was uh, it was pre Carlos Santana trade pre three way deal. You had spent the morning introducing people to the three way trade or reintroducing, I guess I should say, to the three way trade of, of Trevor Bauer a few years ago. And of course, it was some foreshadowing for what took place later. But I'll, I will at least tell the story up to the part where I left you and then you can pick it up there. Because we got up early in the morning. We knew it was Rule 5 day. The Indians had told us that they were unsure if they were going to take anybody. But we knew that the front office was leaving in the morning. They had assured us that they were heading out. So we knew that it was probably safe. You didn't have to hang around Las Vegas much anymore because probably nothing was going to happen for the rest of the day. So we rolled out. We happened to have flights at the same time, although we were on different airlines. So you were set to fly southwest, correct? Correct. And I was on Spirit. Now, Sorry. I can say, <laughs> you, you apologized. My flight was so pleasant. <laughs> they shut the door, got word that the deal was happening, tweeted out some things. I saw you tweeting as well. Um, and so just before I lost service, as we took off, was able to get a little bit out there. And then that's where I left the world, because on a Spirit flight, we didn't have any Wi-Fi. Now, for that almost four hour period you didn't have wi-fi for a lot of that but your story was a little bit more interesting than mine where the only thing you had to worry about was whether or not you were going to pay the extra couple of dollars to get the coke zero that they are offering so i actually think we should rewind a few days you mentioned the trevor bauer three-way trade story and so both of us were asking throughout the week kind of How does a three-team trade get done? When do you know you need a third team? Have you ever had dealings with four teams, five teams? So we're we're asking about that earlier in the week. And then I think one day I asked a question where I kind of inferred or implied. I I never know which word to use there. that That basically said, could you do something where you would trade a player 
signed for one year at a large salary for a player signed for multiple years at a lower salary. Like my question was completely talking about an Edwin for Santana scenario. I just didn't name names cause they'll never comment on actual names, but um, and then, then we started talking Wednesday about uh, whether they've completed a trade while on a flight. And, and they mentioned how, Last year, they landed in Cleveland after the winter meetings, and they stuck around the airport for a couple of hours, which we later learned was so that they could negotiate a contract with Carlos Santana, who ended up going to Philadelphia instead. But all these questions throughout the week, little do we know, but their (laughs) antenna had gone up. Like, they were – they thought we knew what they were doing the the entire week. Wait, what what do you mean? They thought we knew. We we absolutely knew what they were doing. But Mike Chernoff said once we got off the flight yesterday, he's like, he's like, I kept thinking, like, how does he know this? Like, how does he know everything we're doing? Um, and of course, like, I didn't. You know, you you, you hear rumblings and and you read things, and there are ideas, but you don't. You have no way of knowing how close something is, or if something is super legitimate. Remember, Terry Francona said ninety nine point nine percent of rumors around the time of the winter meetings are false um so well before you advance further yeah. let's let's focus it on what you and i were trying to accomplish in every time we got brought up to the suite because we did know little bits and nuggets and little pieces not enough to put together a giant picture but there were there were ways in which you could piece some things together to sort of understand what they were doing but as you said they're never going to talk specifics and we've tried that, Pat, in the past. We have gone about asking specifics. You get shut down, and it usually doesn't go anywhere. You end up frustrated and with nothing to use and no real sense of what's happening. Now, most of the time we left their suite this week, we still left with no clear-cut idea of what they were doing. They weren't offering specifics. But I think you and I made it a point to try to use this time to get a little bit more inside their head on philosophy and process and learning how they go about certain things, not just three-way trades, but just negotiations, period. When you start a negotiation, how do you go in knowing what would be the appropriate ask? Where do you start? Because you're not going to have a conversation about Corey Kluber or Trevor Bauer and give them names and that be the bottom of what you would accept. Of course not. That's not how you negotiate. So how do you go in? asking for something that gives you some wiggle room to come down in your negotiation, but also not turn off the team so that the conversations end period. So there were a lot of different things that we were trying to get to the bottom of, but you're right. A lot of what we talked about ended up coming to fruition in little bits and pieces. And maybe the most important thing to keep in mind is what Chris Antonetti said a few days ago when he was talking about, how many of the deals that they're considering are all intertwined. They're all connected. And it's, it sort of played itself out in this Santana trade, and it continues the theme from the Gomes trade, and that's that it's really difficult to evaluate each of these deals individually. It's going to be a big-picture thing at the end to see exactly where this ends up. Right. So we knew they were flying – Thursday morning we didn't know what time we didn't know what airline but I get to the gate which did you make you say you made your flight I I saw that regular TSA line and I (laughs) I poured one out for you now where I was headed was different than where you're headed I flew through the the gate very quickly 
Okay. So I was I was blessed. Okay. Now um, you, you wanted to leave the the hotel about seven minutes before our flight. Yes. And we somehow came to a negotiation. See, I started at seven o'clock. You started at nine o'clock, and we met somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so that's kind of how this thing goes for a nine ten flight. <laughs> uh, I like to roll out of bed. I've got the TSA pre-check is the greatest gift on on in the world, and it's life changing. And there were zero people in in front of me in line in TSA pre-check. Now, I'm glad that we came to a compromise or or you kind of won our negotiation because I get to the gate and I'm with Ryan Lewis of the Akron Beacon Journal. um, And I see Mike Chernoff. I see Matt Foreman, the assistant general manager. They're standing kind of under the monitors that tell you departure times, which were hovering above a bunch of slot machines, which were calling my name. And <laughs> sorry like, about that, by the way, <laughs> seated at the gate, you've got two members from the analytics department sitting together in one row. You've got a member of the video team and the scouting department sitting together on the other side of the gate. You've got two, the assistant home clubhouse manager and the visiting clubhouse manager arrive and they sit down together so like there are indians people all over the place and then antonetti walks in and he's standing with Chernoff and foreman and they're texting foreman pulls out his laptop at one point uh Chernoff was on the phone like i'm sitting there sitting across from them looking like just staring at them <laughs> and they know this Chernoff later said he could tell i was suspicious and, and then I started panicking a little bit. This felt like a Seinfeld episode. I'm telling Ryan. So I had a 27 boarding position. It's Southwest. Ryan had a 30. We figured those guys were going to be at the front. If they're flying Southwest, they're at least going to pay for the business select and be the first guys boarding that flight. So I'm thinking, where do I sit? Of course, we, we line up. I, I like I don't get nervous for many things anymore. My hands were sweating to, to pick my seat on a Southwest flight. Like, this is ridiculous. I'm thinking they'll sit in the front and maybe I sit like a row or two behind them just so if anything happens, at least I'm right there and I can get what I need and I can talk to them. But I get on the flight and they all are sitting in the middle. They're in the exit rows and they're all in the aisles so they can congregate. And I completely panicked. Do I sit in front? Do I sit behind? Do I occupy the middle or the, the window seat in one of their rows? Would they think that I'm just being a complete nuisance and want to shut me out? I don't want these guys to hate me. I rely on them all the time. So this was, I completely freaked out. And I just plopped down in the seat like three or four rows in front of them. And immediately regretted that decision, thinking... Well, now I'm not going to be able to see what they're doing. If they complete a trade while we're on this flight, like, how am I going to know? I can't just turn around and stare at them the whole time, or I guess I could. <laughs> so Ryan sits in, he sits next to me in our row. I think, like, if this ever becomes a TV show, Travis Sawchick of 538 will play a, a really funny character in this episode because <laughs> he, he forgot to check in. So by the time he finally did, 
he got C-35, which is like the last person to board the plane. And he didn't want to have to deal with that. So he, he had his company pay to upgrade him last minute. So it cost $50, and he got, he got A-8. So he's one of the first people to board the flight. He, he doesn't need to follow along if there's a transaction. He's writing more big-picture baseball trend stuff, so he doesn't care what the Indians are doing. So he sits in, like, the fifth row, the aisle seat. It's a great spot. But then we're thinking, all right, well, he's a reporter. You know, if just in case he wants to participate in anything if they make a deal. Or, because Ryan had a window seat. And we were thinking, you know, we don't want to have to, like, talk over someone if someone's sitting between us. So Ryan decided to move to the middle seat, and he offered Travis the window. Well, Travis says you know what i like windows like that that's worth it to me and and i can sit next to these guys i know that's fine so he moves to our row one problem there was no window in our row it was just the wall (laughs) so he is then complaining because he made his company pay 50 dollars for one of the worst seats on the plane and he probably could have had that seat with c35 so just like little things like that that happened throughout the day that like i just kept playing the seinfeld theme song in my head um, but we're, we're getting ready for takeoff and like right when John Heyman tweeted, his tweets are in like hieroglyphics, but I think it just said like Santana to Indians or something like that. And it could have been Domingo Santana. It could have been, uh, I mean, it, it could have been Carlos Santana, the guitarist. I don't know. You never know with him, but, uh, right around that time I got a text saying, that Santana and Edwin were on the move um, and that it was a three-team deal. So I, I go to tweet that out. The the air, the flight attendants had already said, put your phones in airplane mode. Like they had done their walk up and down the aisles. Um, but I looked behind me as I'm tweeting this out and Chris Antonetti was still on his phone. So I'm thinking if they yell at me, they better yell at this guy because I, I got to get this out there. So I tweet out, it's a, it's a three-team trade. Edwin's going to Seattle. Carlos is coming to Cleveland. And I turned around to Antonetti, and he's, like, smiling. And he just says, it's done. And I said, like, are there any other players and stuff? And he, he, he texted me really quick and just said, we can talk about it when we get <clears throat> to our cruising altitude, and you can use the internet and whatnot. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. I, I tweeted out what I knew as soon as I knew it, and, and – um, and it was accurate. And in 10 minutes when, when I have Wi-Fi, like I'll get the rest out there. And I've got the greatest resources in the world sitting a few rows behind me. This is perfect. So we, we take off and the Wi-Fi doesn't work. And Ryan and I are freaking out. And Antonetti and Chernoff are laughing. Like they know we need to do our work. And, and obviously they would prefer they had Wi-Fi too, but this was entertainment for them watching us kind of freak out and panic. Um, and it became this whole ordeal for a couple hours. So once the Wi-Fi didn't work, I kind of changed my thinking into, I think the more interesting angle here is, yeah, they made a trade, but they made it as they were boarding the flight. Like they, they were calling players when we saw them at the gate. That's what they were doing at that time. So uh, this was a first for them. They had certainly done work on a flight before. But to finish it that close, like during the boarding process and um, 
communicating with Jake Bowers, like literally while on the plane about to take off was unprecedented. And it made for a fun angle for me. It made for a stressful, chaotic day for everybody. And in the end, like, I'm glad it played out the way it did. Uh, but man, that is the winter meetings. We, everyone said all week, how boring they were, how nothing was happening. Uh, and even sure enough, Nance and Eddie were like, we do nothing for four days. And then all this comes together at the last second. And I know a lot of people, some, some people were like, like, why would you rush a trade and make it be- right before you get on a plane? And that, that's not what happened. I mean, they had this trade agreed upon early in the morning, possibly even last night. Um, they needed approval from the commissioner's office because of the money changing hands. So it just so happened that the approval came <laughs> right as we were about to take off. But what a crazy, crazy morning and afternoon um, and something that I'm guessing won't happen again. You know, these negotiations, you you work at it, you work at it, you work at it until you finally get to an agreement. And with a three-team deal, it's even more complicated. So when you get to a point where everybody has agreed to something, you want to get it in and you want to get it done. You don't want to have anybody back out because, as they told us several times this week, nothing is done until it's officially done. So I can't even imagine. I mean, you were nervous sitting there picking your flight. The Indians had to be nervous as they're thinking the gate's going to be closing here. We've got some last-minute things to accomplish. Everybody Mm -hmm. has agreed to it, but it hasn't been okayed by the commissioner's office. There's always a possibility that we might hit a snag here. There could be something that trips us up. And if we're somehow in the air and our Wi-Fi doesn't work and we're off the grid for four hours, that's not good. So I can't even imagine from their perspective – as they're trying to not only make sure that it clears with the league, but also talk to these players so that they're not hearing it through Twitter, that they're hopefully having some sense of what's happening. And even if it does happen kind of simultaneously, as these things can do, you also don't want to go four hours without having called and talked to some of these players. You don't want to be at the the mercy of, of letting people beneath you, well beneath you on the totem pole, because everybody else is on the flight, do those things for you. It's, Really, really weird that it all comes together, but mm-hmm. it, it does show that timing is everything, that things can happen at any point. One phone call can change everything. And in your position and in our position for what we do, sometimes for as much preparation as you can put in, for as, as much as you can hound somebody and try to be on something, so much of our job is just being at the right place at the right time and able to capitalize. Now, to your credit, you got the pitch you were looking for and knocked it out of the park. So you still have to do that part of it, too. You have to write a great story. But you have to luck into being at the right spot and in the, the right time and know how to own that moment. And that's that's what's crazy about sometimes what we do. Yeah, and keep in mind, Mariners GM Jerry DePoto was finalizing things on his end from his hospital bed. Right. So that, that delayed the process a little bit, too. I think now, luckily, just... Stone Cold Steve Austin didn't come in and hit him over the head with a bedpan at no point. In the Hopefully he got Sacco and joined the fun. <laughs> that would have been nice. Um, but it was – I think they had planned on getting this done maybe a day in advance. Uh, but it just – obviously all the circumstances led to what happened. It was just – when you think about not having Wi-Fi and – like so the Indians couldn't send out the press release. They couldn't – I mean we interviewed Antonetti when we landed from the information desk in front of – the TSA pre-check line at Hopkins Airport. That was a first. Bart Swain, the PR guy, was standing taking pictures of it because it was like a historic <laughs> moment uh, for baseball writers. But 
it was you you think about everything that happened and, and the flight attendants like they had a joke for everything and they had they, they were singing it was so bizarre i felt like i truly felt like jerry seinfeld and i, I couldn't stop thinking that way <laughs> and you know one of the flight attendants offered us free alcoholic beverage because they felt bad about the wi-fi which we learned later they didn't really feel bad for the wi-fi because ryan went to the bathroom and when he was in the bathroom he overheard them talking about oh they must be millennials complaining about no wi-fi well it's like no we're just trying to do our jobs thanks southwest jesus (laughs) but uh and, and it's not like we were like banging our fists on our tray tables and and bitching and moaning about it we were just i mean we were disappointed we we did we asked if they knew what was up, if they, there was anything they could do. They reset it for us. Of course, it comes on with like 20 minutes before we start our descent. So it, it didn't help too much. But at one point, a flight attendant, because she felt bad, she offered us a free alcoholic beverage. Ryan and I declined. Of course, Travis accepted. Um, he asked for she, – she listed every sort of alcoholic drink they had, and then he just asks for a beer. So then she's got to list every beer they have. He asks for an Oktoberfest. She goes to get an Oktoberfest. Well, a bunch of time passes. I think they forgot about it. He reminds them. A bunch more time passes. She comes back. She apologized. They had to sit down because there was some turbulence, so the flight attendants couldn't be up and moving. She comes back with a Founders All Day IPA. Uh, he says, okay. She goes, we didn't have Oktoberfest. I'm sorry here. This is similar. Travis says, oh, that's fine. I like this. Travis proceeds to spill the beer. Drops it on the ground. I start freaking out. Like, this is not what we need right now. Uh, he is completely nonchalant about it. Just casually sitting there. I'm like, what are you doing? Pick up your beer. He says, well, I don't think it was open. I'm like, you don't think or you know? He's like, think. Like, like, how are you being so casual about this? He finally picks it up. It wasn't open, thank God. But he didn't want to open it then because it would explode. So he gets the flight attendant. He says, hey, this fell on the ground. Can I get a new one? She goes in the back. She comes back with an Oktoberfest. <laughs> I mean, it was like just everything that happened was <laughs> it was comedy. Um, and so the whole day it was like i mean i i know you said i had a pitch and knocked it out of the park it was teed up for me i mean it was it, throughout the process you feel stressed you feel like your brain is going a million different directions and yet i think in the back of my mind i knew like it was playing out perfectly and this is exactly what i need i mean i, I would just Every so often, I would turn around, and Antonetti was a few rows behind me in the aisle, so he would just be looking back my direction. And I could say, like, so it's a three-team deal, or I could be like, is there cash involved? And he would answer me, because what's he going to do? Like, put a face mask on? And <laughs> that's the only way he could ignore me. If you um, can't see me, if I can't see you, you can't see me. Right. But it was, you know, I was able to ask, like, did you get the Oreos or the pretzels? And he said neither. So, hey, there's another detail for the story. Just it was it was really it was actually looking back on it. It was fun, even though it was so stressful as it went on. Well, you mean I think you made the right call covering that aspect of it, because there'll be plenty of time to break down the particulars of that trade and what it means for for them moving forward. And it would give us time to, to do that here on this podcast. So. 
We wouldn't have that spectacular story if you wouldn't have covered it. So if you haven't read it and if you're looking for all the little details, I suggest you go over to The Athletic right now and subscribe. As Zach was talking about on his Twitter feed at one point, you know, if you're a student, you're like, oh, I can't afford it. Well, here's 50 percent off. If you're like, oh, man, I don't know. Here's a free trial. If you just wait three seconds, we'll probably be able to find some sort of subscription code that could end up paying off for you. So if you've been on the fence, uh, use this story as a way to jump off of it and come join us on the other side uh, where we're having a little bit of fun. All right. So let's talk about this trade in particular. Uh, It was weird. Yeah. Initially, when when we only knew Santana and Edwin, it became a little hard to wrap your brain around it because you knew it had to be, you had to go deeper than that, especially with a three team deal, but there had to be some money shifting hands because you wouldn't just bring in Santana, swap him for Edwin and pay for another year of his services. Now you can look at what they're going to contribute in 2019. I think there's a good chance that Edwin and, and Carlos are very similar in their productions with, with Encarnacion having another year of potential decline. And there were some warning signs, I think some pretty big red flags about his season last year. If you go beyond just the counting stats that still looked pretty solid. Uh, mm-hmm. Look look to be a guy that is showing the, the typical things you see from an aging slugger, a guy that has to maintain his power by selling out a little bit more. And so you see some swing and miss more. The, the walk rate goes down a bit. You've got to sacrifice some things as you get a little bit older. And that's kind of what it, it looked like to me. And I wrote about it points during the season over at The Athletic. So I think there's a chance that Santana, if you look at what he did last year, he had a horrible first month but he had some horrific luck, luck in that month. I think at, at one point, two of the most or two or three of the most unluckiest, unluckiest hitters in baseball were Santana, Jason Kipnis and Yonder Alonzo. So a lot of Cleveland ties there. If you look beyond just what he did in the month of April from May through the rest of the year, pretty much everything he did was on par with career norms. So I don't think there's like a, a massive decline there. We saw, Uh, Throughout the year, he's a little bit younger than Edwin. He can play the field, which is something that Edwin really can't do at this stage of his career. So I think if you just look at the overall swap of those two, it's not out of the question that they're pretty similar in value next year. But to me, it was always about how does this benefit you because you're paying him for another year? And as we see later on, once we saw the money involved, this does give them more flexibility in 2019, something that they've been chasing through all of these deals. Yeah, you know, I'm interested to see Santana. I think he's going to be more comfortable, and I think maybe that'll make a difference. I think some of those early struggles might have been trying to live up to a mega contract in a new place. Maybe not, uh, but I, I I, agree with you. I think Edwin and, and Santana are kind of a wash. I know you get more more power with, with Encarnacion. You're also getting a guy who's four years older. And like you said, I mean, he had to sell out more. The walk rate just completely eroded last season. And you know you're going to get that from Santana. Uh, and you're going to get better defense at first base. That's that's a key, too. Uh, he, he turned into a really good defensive first baseman. And, and maybe he – I mean, assuming he plays there, I, I don't know what they're going to do with Bowers and Alonzo. I tried to ask about Alonzo yesterday and – Obviously, they're not going to say, hey, we're trying to trade him. Yeah. But I, I, I know that they are. Uh, I don't know if they'll be successful in that endeavor. It, it's the thing to me that the, what makes this trade, I think, is basically Diaz and Bowers is who lives up to the hype. 
I, I know we've both said at ad nauseum over the last couple of years they needed to give Yandy Diaz more of a chance in Cleveland. They never did. I was thinking he, he, he'd be perfect to start at third base, keep Ramirez at second base, let him, you know, post a 300, 370, 430 slash line. And for a third baseman, that's dreamy. And, and like, he, he had the potential to do that. I don't, I don't know if it would have happened. Um, I don't know if it'll happen in Tampa. But now, to me, like, unless you make more – I think more moves are coming, but depending on what they are, right now as it's situated, you got Kipnis back at second and Ramirez at third, and I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know exactly what to make of Bowers. I know there's a lot of hype there. He was a top 50 prospect a couple of, what, a year ago. And it's a little weird because you look at his career numbers, even in the minors, he never posted an 800 OPS. He struggled mightily his first year in Tampa. He got off to a decent start and then really cooled off. But they're, they're upset that they, that they parted with him. I saw a lot of Tampa fans thought highly of him. I know the Rays organization thought highly of him. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, it, it's, it's a matter of can the 27-year-old immediately make an impact in Tampa or can the 23 year old develop into a, a bona fide slugger in Cleveland? I think that, uh, I think that age factor is a big part of this. Yep. The, the control is similar between the two. You're not really worried about that, but if you look at a guy that yes, he hit 200, he hit 11 home runs, got off to a great start. He had a walk off home run against the Yankees. I mean, there were some things initially that really were intriguing about him. Then he tailed off. League made some adjustments. He's got to make some adjustments back. But overall, just looking at the big picture, he was 5% below average in uh, WRC plus below the league. We were where 100 is league average. To do that at his age, I think is encouraging. He sort of profiles a little similar to, to Santana in that he doesn't strike out a ton. He walks pretty steadily. He's going to give you a pretty good on-base percentage, and he's got some power, not elite power. Maybe that changes as he gets older, but right now it looks like he projects as some power, and that sort of reminds me of what Santana has been, a guy that doesn't have elite power but can hit you into the 20s, and if it all goes right, he can get you into the close to 30. But more you're just relying on somebody to be steady on base all the time and doesn't strike out a ton. It just they seem very similar in their profiles, at least at the the younger portion of their careers. And the fact that he was at 22, 23 years old and not being completely overmatched the major league level overall, I think is really encouraging. And he's always been one of the younger guys at whatever level he's been at. And a lot of evaluators will say that having success compared to the age at your level, and if you're well underneath of it as far as your age goes, that shows you that guy's probably going to be pretty good. Now, he offers some flexibility because he can play first. He can play corner outfield. And they, if they don't end up trading Alonzo, there's still a way to get him at bats without having a slot at first base immediately available. But beyond them obviously liking him and whatever disconnect was there with, with Diaz, okay, they end up going in a different direction. I think it also benefits them because now with the, the Jan Gomes trade, that cleared $7 million, conceivably. And then with this trade, what does that save them? Between 9 and 10 this year? There's been some, mm-hmm. some debate there, but somewhere between 9 to $10 million they, they save this year 
by spreading out the deal over two years. Now they're going to pay Santana into 2020. But through doing that, they've created some more financial wiggle room for themselves. And we talked about this at length through every time we've talked about trading a starter. They couldn't approach this from a position of needing to do it. They couldn't trade Corey Kluber or Trevor Bauer from a position of we have to create this space. And if we don't do this, we can't win in 2019 uh, or we can't drastically change the roster because or we can't fill these holes that we have because we just don't have the, the, the financial wiggle room to get it done. Creating that flexibility elsewhere is something we talked about because you don't want to be in a position where you you take a lesser package because you need to clear some salary or you have to attach Kipnis to one of those deals and lessen your return because you're so eager to create the flexibility through both of these trades. They've given themselves probably not all the flexibility that they would prefer, but at least a little bit so that they can walk away from either a Kluber or Bauer trade conversation, walk away from the table and not feel like they have to be pressured into anything because they don't have that flexibility. And maybe, maybe when it's all said and done, that ends up being one of the most overlooked parts of the two trades that they've made so far. You nailed it. Uh, I, I think they're asking for a lot for Kluber and Bauer. And when you trade a pitcher of that caliber, you cannot settle. You have to absolutely nail that trade. And to do that, you have to get quite a bit in return. And so, they don't want to settle. They don't want to come down off of what they're asking for. And maybe they don't have to now. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, I think these two trades that they've made so far, I think we've left both of them saying, well, they're not better in 2019. Um, maybe they're a little worse. I think that kind of depends on Roberto Perez and Jake Bowers. But they have saved money. And now look, they have to spend that money that they're saving. If they don't do anything with that money, then front office and ownership deserve to be criticized, persecuted, and and have terrible things written about them, uh, or be stuck on a 24-hour flight with no Wi-Fi. (laughs) But but if they do spend money, then it all makes sense, because then you can address the outfield, maybe. You you can address the bullpen, certainly, because the relievers are going to be cheaper than the outfielders. Um, But... There are ways they're giving themselves alternatives to where if they don't feel confident in the return they get for Kluber or Bauer, they have other avenues where they can find ways to address their weaknesses. Well, and I give them credit because, as you said, we know the price that they're asking for for those guys is through the roof, and they shouldn't back off of it. You've got frontline starters. It's one of the most coveted commodities, if not the most coveted commodity in baseball. And you've got those guys at multiple years of control for Bauer two and for Kluber three. You can't come away with less than what you're you're asking for, or less than you would accept because you're only thinking about creating flexibility and you're only thinking about patching all of your holes. We'll see. This is as we started this podcast, they said that all a lot of these things are interwoven and very much connected. And that's why, you know, we talked about the Gomes trade. And right off the bat, it kind of looked confusing because they didn't get back any pieces that were clear cut going to help them in 2019. This uh, three team swap with Edwin and and Santana getting back Bowers, it might end up being a wash or, or very much close to that. And it doesn't through making that trade alone doesn't necessarily make them better in 2019. But what are you going to do with all this cap space that you're clearing? 
It does. Does this create a situation where if they do make a Kluber or a Bauer trade, and it still seems like that's very much in play, does that create enough flexibility that they can make a play for one of these free agents that we've considered off the grid? Do they go out and I know you, you mentioned last night on one of your radio hits, AJ Pollock. Can, can that put them into, into that ballpark, being able to discuss a trade of, or a, a signing with him or somebody else? Or maybe it's a pitcher. Maybe it's a bullpen arm. Does this put them into a position where they can consider a multi-year deal? I think there's a lot on the table here. and there's, it, It's been fun to fo- kind of follow their thought process on this. But at the same time, I think you have to go deeper than each individual trade. We'll try to keep our, our thought spread among the, the big picture. But I do understand as this plays out why it's tough for fans to to maybe think about it that way because we we want to be able to grade everything immediately. Why do you why do you think five minutes after the NFL draft is done? Hell, not even five minutes after the draft is done, five minutes after the first round is done, we've graded every single team. It's because you always want to have some initial thought on what your team did in the immediate future. Yeah, that's always so silly. <laughs> you you set yourself up to only look stupid. A few years later. And but. we certainly need no help in doing that. Our friend Alex sent me an email which contained uh, an interesting question, maybe for a future podcast. He wanted to know the dynamics of national and local reporters, why national guys break a lot of the news and local guys um, are often chasing things. And it, it, I, that's one that will take a little bit more time. So maybe we can address that in the future. But sure. he did send me a random Indian. This one is a little bit outside of the – we typically stick to Jacobs Field slash Progressive Field era, random Indians. This one barely bleeds into that category, but since he sent it and took the time, I figured we could do it this week. So are you game? I guess. (laughs) Well, this former random Indian actually spent three years with the Indians, 92 to 94. At that time, he was 26, 27, and 28 years old. And I was in diapers. (laughs) To give you an idea. Um, It was a left-handed pitcher. I'll get a little bit more specific since we're going back even further. A left-handed pitcher, which he spent three years in Cleveland. His time in Cleveland led to a 10-10 record. It's always important to evaluate a, a reliever that way. 163 appearances and posted an ERA of 255. So kind of good in his time in Cleveland. Any initial guesses? None. <laughs> did he, did he, where else did he play? He, where did he play after that? He went on to play a year in Boston and a year with Cincinnati. And that was it? That was it. Oh. Eight year career. Spent time with Cleveland, Atlanta, San Diego, Boston, and Cincinnati. The lengthiest oh, part, the lengthiest portion of his career was spent in Cleveland for three years. This is not. This is out of my comfort zone. Um, trying to remember that '94 team. It was a weird transition year. It was. He had 36 appearances that year, including 12 games finished. Saved a game through 29 and get a third it. innings. He was drafted initially by the Red Sox in the 15th round in 1984. It's a good year. And 
later was drafted by the Braves in the first round, sixth overall in the 87 June amateur draft. Yeah, I don't know. Let me see if I can give you one more. Uh... Why don't you give me the first name and the last initial? <laughs> I don't think that's really fair. I believe he was involved in the... This connects to the Indians, too, because they had their own bullpen mix-up this past year. But I believe he connects to the the Cardinals one in the World Series where there was a miscommunication on the pitcher that was supposed to be on the mound. And I do believe he was the bullpen coach at that time for the Cardinals. I don't know. I know everyone in their car is yelling at me. Not necessarily. Let me see. Any last, anything that would help you get him? I don't think so. Okay, well, if if you think me giving you the first name and the last initial will help, Derek L. Lilliquist. Ah, there you go. Yeah. That's tough. I, I You know, we pay so much attention to the 90s teams obviously because of our age and, and when we grew up, but also there was no reason to watch the early nineties Indians. Um, so I know, you know, I know some players, but when you are learning more about those old teams, there is not as much reason to educate yourself on some of those pre Jacobs field. Teams, it's so. weird that 94 team is just forgotten, right? Cause it, it all started for many people in their minds with 95 and that run. That, that year was made. basically that year was basically opening day. And then um, was that wait, was Albert Bell's bat scandal in 94 and 95? That was shoot. I think that was 94. Yeah. I mean, those are like the only things that happened that season was the opening day game, the bell bat scandal. And then the strike. And it's no one remembers anything else. About and it's year. so unfortunate because that team appeared to be coming together late in the year. And who knows what they end up. They might have accomplished. They were one game back in the division at that point. They had, I think Kenny Lofton was having an MVP caliber year. I mean, yeah. he was having a ridiculous season hitting like three thirty something at that point, I think. That team could have, if if the strike didn't happen at that point, that team very much could be on the radar of those mid-90s Indians, and it would have started a year earlier for a lot of people. But because of the way that season ended, it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So Kenny Lofton that year in 94 at the time of the strike was hitting 349 with a 412 on base percentage and a 536 slugging. He had a 948 OPS that year. That's better than Jake Bowers. (laughs) He finished fourth in MVP that year. I didn't even know they gave out awards. I I guess it didn't even register to me that they gave out awards for 94. Yeah, that'd be kind of weird if you were the MVP of a season that didn't have a playoffs and ended early. Yeah, he won a gold glove. He was an all-star that year. Uh, Frank Thomas finished in first that year. It went Thomas, Griffey, Bell, then Lofton. I wonder good company. if in the information age that we now live in, where everything is quantified and we're able to track defense so much better and get a complete picture of somebody's total value, would Kenny Lofton have been 
the clear-cut MVP? You know, I wrote a story on this subject a few years back, I think when I was with MLB.com, on how frequently we would change the award winners, Cy Young and MVP, based on what we know now. And it's pretty, there are some really egregious ones. Um, I think like like Jason Giambi won the MVP in 2000, and he should have finished like fifth or something. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you think of how many Cy Young winners won the award because they had a ton of wins, like back in even like the 80s and 90s. Uh, and your MVP oftentimes was give me the best average home runs and RBIs. It makes you think, uh, I, I, I think about the things that we consider to be important today. And at the time, they had things that they considered to be important. And with this constant shift that we had, I mean, even back in 2014 when Kluber won the Cy, we talked a lot about his FIP. And that was, uh, that was forward thinking at the time for many people, talking about his fielding independent pitching and the defense to play behind him. Who knows, maybe even that would go different now that we have things that are even better than FIP or go deeper than FIP to evaluate a pitcher. And then you get into that whole debate about should you reward a guy for what should have happened as opposed to what actually did happen. It gets difficult. Keep going. This could be an entire podcast. Yeah. I mean, J.D. Martinez finished fourth in the MVP voting this year, and I think he would have won it if it was 1999 or 2000 or 2001. Well, keep that filed away because I'm sure at some point we'll approach a slow week in this offseason. <laughs> I think it'll happen at some point that maybe they'll trade their pitcher and we won't lead every podcast talking about that. So that would be very, very much appreciated. But thankfully this week we conclude our three-part series with tales of your airplane journeys. And I don't know that you'll ever be able to top that. So congrats. Yeah. Are you ready to go back to Vegas now that you've been back in Cleveland for <laughs> almost 24 hours? Got Two screaming children and a wife that wants to leave for a week. Uh, so she might actually go out to Vegas and leave me here. I don't blame her. How was Linus? Is he excited that you're home? He was extremely excited for about three seconds, and then he realized it was dinner time and <laughs> food takes the priority. Yeah, well, that's true of pretty much anything. Uh, any parting words? No, we appreciate everyone who has obviously followed us, read us on The Athletic, but uh, especially – this week during a what turned out to be a hectic winter meeting. So who would have thought uh, it was fun and we have plenty of analysis and, and more coming um, yes. and even as we get into the holiday season. So I'm sure we'll do another podcast before the holidays, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been a weird off season so far and I have a feeling there's a lot more to come. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but whatever happens on your flight back from Vegas, Zach will write about at The Athletic. <laughs> you can subscribe. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Anchor, Overcast, Pocket Cast, all the ones I told you about this week that we get random listens from. And again, if, you, if you're subscribed to the podcast or listen to us some other way that we don't talk about, I want to know. I want to know how, every, how everybody consumes this podcast. So we make sure that you guys hear it each and every week and again as zach said we thank all of you that have followed along this week and continue to follow along over at the athletic and if you haven't subscribed jump on that now i'm always really really uh, surprised when i see the number of 
of fans from other teams that read everybody else's stuff. And maybe we don't talk about that enough. When you subscribe to The Athletic, it's not just Cleveland stuff. You get stuff from everywhere, anything you could want to know. It was great because that trade happens yesterday. And I can immediately go to see what our friend in Seattle is writing, what our friend in Tampa is writing. I I, I can see um, we can be connected across many different uh, sports and, and different teams. So if I need to know what's happening elsewhere, you can find that very easily. And thank you. To those of you that have subscribed recently on the podcast side of things, we do appreciate each and every single one of you. Until next week, have a good weekend, everybody, and we'll catch you later.